0: Back to
1: the Bins. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I am one of your hosts, Paul Spitaro, and I am here with a podcasting cornucopia of talent, uh, some (laughs) of which you may know and some of which you may not. Uh, But it is not my usual band of uh, merry men, it is not Bill Robinson, it is not Scott Gardner. First I have the hair metal hero, Chris Tyler. Chris, welcome aboard.
2: Hey, thanks for having
1: me. And uh, I also have Mr. Mike Wilkerson. Hey Mike. Hey, what
3: a pleasure to be here, Paul, thanks for inviting me.
1: I'm glad you guys were both able to make it. So since I don't know how many of our listeners know who you guys are, let's uh, just touch on who, who on who you are Chris what what shows do you go on uh,
2: I am uh, one of the cohorts on the vault of startling monster horror tales of terror uh, um, I guest here and there on certain other things uh, Scott hates me because I created the molester bot and he'll never <laughs> let me live it down
1: um, and that's about it and Chris works regularly with Chris Honeywell so we know he has infinite patience
3: <laughs> yes <laughs>
1: And, Mike, you are not even a member of the Two True Freaks Network, and yet here you are. Uh, why don't you tell, tell everybody what about your show, your network, your shows?
3: Sure. Sure. Mike Wilkerson and I concepted the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network available over at twoguystalking.com. That's the number two, guys talking.com. It's going to be 10 years in September that we concepted that network with a little show called the 24 Podcast, following each and every hour of the hit talk show 24, Jack Bauer, Guns, Explosions, and awesome storytelling that we followed for the last four years of that program and then exploded into a bunch of really great movie-based podcasting via Two Guys Talking, and we've fallen wonderfully into the Dexter Podcast, the world's largest Dexter-based podcast, as well as the Fangbanger Podcast, which is the world's largest Fangbanger Podcast, which follows each and every episode of True Blood on HBO.
1: And Mike most recently has been on the doing the following podcast, which has clearly been a painful experience for him because uh you know you you jump on these shows when they first come on based on potential but it, this was that 's one show that clearly did not live up to its potential yeah,
3: well, and who would, have, uh, who would, who would have thought that bacon flavor would taste so badly after <laughs> only fifteen sucky episodes
1: <laughs> you know it's it's funny I was watching the show and i I do have this innate ability, and I think it's an, it's not necessarily a good thing, but I have this ability to kind of just work my way through something like that and kind of turn a blind eye to some of the uh, the negatives. And-, and you're not
3: alone, Paul. Unfortunately, there are so many people that say, oh god, I, I love the show, it's awesome! And when you ask them why, and they can't explain why except that Kevin Bacon is in it. Okay, well that's not good
1: enough. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one,
3: of the, one of the hallmarks inside of everything Two Guys Talking is I try to encourage people to to take listening not only to our podcast, but watching television to an educational level where you're supposed to be getting something from it. You guys are depositing just as sure as you have money in your hand time into something that you watch or participate in. And so there should be at least a bar of quality that you are able to grab and garner something from. And unfortunately, as all of the experts that we've had on the following podcast over the last 15 terrible episodes uh, can tell you it, it's not a good program. It is a it is a program that sets a sample for law enforcement in general that makes everyone look like an idiot. And, and I uh, do have add on I, some really flimsy storytelling and some cliched add-ons, and it, it's not a very good show. And that that is the true test of a podcaster is can you make a show that reviews a program that's terrible into something that people will listen to, and we can do that every single time.
1: Well, you know and 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 I'll give you credit for that too, because I think without your show, Fox can thank you because I probably would have stopped watching the following, but what mm-hmm. I ended up doing was I continued watching the following because I was listening to your podcast, and I wanted <laughs> to watch the episode that you're talking about.
3: Absolutely. And, uh, you know, th- th- that's one of the fun parts is that w- we don't we don't nitpick to nitpick for nitpicking's sake. What we do is we, we, that educational cone of watching a television program and then letting you understand what vision and, and Scott Roberts, my co-host, are having while you're watching that program. That's what we're dispensing to you. That's the value of watching our program that you will clearly be missing if you do not. If you only watch the follow up. Your and- feedback is very much what people are saying about our show.
1: And and my last point on that show and one of the things I do appreciate that you've provided is the look at law enforcement because uh, my dad was a cop and then he was a DEA agent and he's been retired now for oh, 20 years or so. But uh, but I mean he did put a full career in, his, in law enforcement and a lot of my best friends growing up became police officers and most of them have retired now mm-hmm. because we're getting old. Uh, but I have a – Real background with you know people with uh, that I have personal relationships with who are in law enforcement, and I don't care for them to be shown as buffoons because that's well, I mean, not the way they are, and I don't like it.
3: Well, and that, that's the the experts that we have everything from local law enforcement officers to special agents to snipers to firefighters to people that own gun ranges to uh, everybody that we bring on for action busting inside of that program and other two guys talking properties. They say exactly the same thing you do. There is a difference between showing people that make mistakes and people that are idiots. And never (laughs) under any circumstances should we take the umbrella of they're all idiots going on television every week. That is what the following has done, not fail. One of the few programs that started off, we hired special consultants to make sure that the the true vision of what goes on inside of the FBI was going to happen. And I don't doubt that they did for about 45 minutes. And then the rest of the show, nothing. Uh, I, 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 there are a few times where I've seen almost wily e. Coyote characters in uniform. and it, it is, it is <laughs> insulting. It really is.
1: It is. It is. And, and I, I agree with you totally. And that's part it. of the fun
3: inside of the following podcast. So, again, for those of you looking for something fun and engaging and ed- educational, the following podcast.com is where you can find all that.
1: And and I found the same thing even with with this show is, uh, you know, a lot of times the books we pick are at random, literally. Mm -hmm. Uh, So so we're picking them and we go forward and we really don't know until we start prepping for it if it's a good book or not. And then once it's picked, Mm -hmm. usually the die is cast and that's what we go with. So sometimes when we have a bad book, I think sometimes it it almost is a better episode because we start having fun with pointing out the weaknesses of the book and some of just the craziness. And as as we were talking about before we started actually recording the episode, uh, sometimes that's the fun of some of the older books, some of the silly things that they came up with and some of the silly tropes that they had uh, especially back in the 60s. You know, Stan Lee was... was Uh, you know, yeah, writing, writing the same story with different characters over and over again sometimes.
3: Yes, yes without question. And so, again, that, that nitpicking part is fun. Uh, I, I've registered both of the domains, Nitpicker Podcast and Nitpickers Podcast, so that when, you know, our, our push through Fox and HBO and Showtime with all the shows that we review currently falls through... We can literally go back in time into anything that we want and just begin nitpicking sons of bitches everywhere. (laughs) And and we'll love it and we'll be listened to because people are listening to us for a lot of that.
1: And just as a, uh, uh, to let our listeners know if anybody is actually interested in this uh, and hearing my first ever podcast appearance it was on the two two guys talking show back in 2009 when we did a review of the first jj abrams star trek movie uh which was a lot of fun and uh, i look forward to getting the chance to record with you again now and just before we start getting into our books uh i just wanted to ask you guys about your comic collecting origins so chris has been quiet for a while so we'll go to him oh boy um
2: when was there a time in my life where there wasn't comic books uh that's uh, Growing up, there was always friends of my family. My mother's best friend would always bring me Spider-Man and Archie comics every time she'd come over. Um, and I can't really think of a better way to start reading comics than those two. <laughs> two different sides of the coin.
1: Um, so about but, where did you get into Spider-Man? Like, where in, in the oh Spider-Man God. history was it?
2: Ooh, early 80s. So probably it's... like 83, 84 Round. Right as right as I was cognizant of, of being able to put the the pictures in order in my in my head.
1: Maybe they're like around the mid two hundreds then.
3: That I be? couldn't
2: e- I couldn't even give you the numbers because I pff, all those books are long gone. How <laughs> 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 is uh, your collection. It's not anything to speak of really. Um, okay. I've had to sell off pieces of it piecemeal over the years, but uh, I I have what I have and I enjoy it. <laughs> but. Uh, Archie and Spider-Man since I was a kid. How about you, Mike?
3: You know, right after my parents were murdered in front of a theater and a radioactive <laughs> spider bit me, um, no, I, I, I would have to say probably 1979, 1980 is when I first started You know, realizing that there was a, a serial nature to the storytelling parts of both Batman and Spider-Man. Um, they both have had a very rigid need to have until a bill gets in the way kind of relationship with me and I was an incredibly heavy collector until probably 1994 when I realized that every single comic company on the planet was not only making another same but different foil version cover Mm. of another comic that I must have but then I started to realize that I, I I started having stacks of comics that were taller than me that I never read, and of course, then when I started going to the comic store and realizing that I, I had to either pick my rent <laughs> or my whole box.
1: Oh, that's that's it, that's, 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 been really really and, that's been a
3: reoccurring theme. That's been a
1: reoccurring theme on the show since I came onto it is how back in the you know in the early seventies when I started collecting, you know, on on a couple of dollar a week allowance, I could basically buy everything Marvel was putting out plus a couple of DCs and still have money, you know, to go out bowling or something like that, or go to the movies with my friends. Uh, now, you know, as, as a middle-aged man, I I can't afford to buy all the books I want.
3: (laughs) Right. No, and I'm totally with you. The the, the gist is that I, I almost have a mixed blessing in that, 1994 1995 it was time to get serious about what am i doing with my life and money and i I literally was squeezed out of collecting comic books now the neat part is that i fell out of that and i fell into uh, a really great career and i made some more money but i never went back to comics in general until maybe a year ago when i started collecting digital comics via something else we'll talk about later on um and it's been fun to go back and pinprick my either existing collection or something that someone has told me about where there's some great storytelling or some some memorable art from some of the great the great artists. That and it's great to go back and see those things digitally and remember what I have in stacks and stacks. You just asked Chris about how many books he has, and I don't know how many I have, but I have everything. I've never. And I think it's just because I can't reach it all. <laughs> but I've never gone back to sell off pieces of what I have. But literally, I have books from that very first year now, obviously beyond before then. But uh, I have the very first comics that I collected still. And they've, uh, they've luckily followed me over the years in one version or another. All, of course, backboarded, put in plastic, and sealed in bags.
1: Of cool. course. Very cool.
3: I'm, I'm independent. Yeah? Me
2: too! I'm. W- whatever you said.
3: independent! Hey, what do you say we both be independent together, huh? For
1: my book this month, I picked Captain Victory and the Galactic Rangers, number one. And why I said this month, I don't know, because it's this week. Uh, <laughs> that was from basically what was an upstart company back in 1981 Pacific Comics. It had a cover price of $1, and it was, the cover date was November of 1991. The mm-hmm. cover is by Jack Kirby, and it shows Captain Victory holding two guns that would make Rob Liefeld jealous, pointing him <laughs> towards the audience.
3: <laughs>
1: the credits for the book are that it's created, written, and drawn by Jack Kirby. It's lettered and inked by Mike Royer, who I believe was a frequent Kirby collaborator. And the colorist is Steve Olaf, who I'm not familiar with. Now, have you guys had a chance to read this one?
3: I have I not. Know. I looked uh, at the cover, though, and that's, yeah. that's some that's okay. sort of that awesome, uh, again, it's the really mammoth art that we're looking at compared to what you see as an elephant art now.
1: Yeah. Uh, but it's 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 kind of a freaky story. It's kind of getting towards the end of the productive Kirby uh, years, (laughs) and the story opens up with Captain Victory, who looks an awful lot like Icarus from the Eternals, who he had created just a couple of years earlier, and he's (laughs) ordering a check of something because he knows that what we're looking at may be a serious breach of galactic law, and we see that Captain Victory is talking to someone named Clavis, who lets us know that they've done this scan five times already, and they do it again. And they agree that the planet that they're looking at has been taken over and there's some sort of a hive and the planet is being consumed. They, uh, they make plans to, do, to attack the enemy task force and Captain Victory goes up to the bridge and puts his head inside of this like TV set looking thing, which is supposedly a portable bridge. But then he goes up to the regular bridge with it on his head, which I really don't understand why he would have the portable bridge while he's on the regular bridge. But in any case, we (laughs) have a two-page spread where we see some bug-like alien ships emerging from the planet that they were scanning, and the crew. uh, Excuse me. Oh, the crew is the crew of the uh, main ship is telling Captain Victory to get somewhere safe. But before he can do anything, the bridge is hit by some enemy fire and Captain Victory is declared to be clinically dead, uh, which I guess should end our story right there. But it goes <laughs> on. Uh, Clavis, who he was talking to earlier, assumes command of the ship and orders an assault on the enemy. Yes, there's Still right? Yes, there is. Don't. Don't. <laughs> there's you always turn more. Out, yes. Uh, he, he orders an assault on the enemy uh, ship and the enemies take losses. They take heavy losses, in fact. And we cut to the enemy command where we meet the alien queen who has a huge head of hair and is wearing a one piece bathing suit looking thing. Uh, she powers her ship with her own energy and they set a course to escape the barrage. They search and end up setting course for earth. They say that they can thrive there while they rebuild their forces. Meanwhile, Captain Victory's memories are being transferred into his 10th clone body. So apparently death is not death in this particular world. Uh, He's brought up to speed by Clavis, and he orders that the planetary hive is destroyed. They shoot some type of missile into the planet and escape at light speed before it explodes. They watch the planet explode and start talking to a real freaky looking dude that they call Mr. Mind. Uh, but he's not the big worm-like thing from Captain America, Captain Marvel. He's looks more like MODOK, to be honest with you. Uh, yeah. He tells them that the queen, who is called the Lightning Lady, escaped to a planet, and he shows it to them, and I assume that's Earth. He asks to be allowed to fight at their side and is told no. And then we cut to Act 2, which is an extremely short act in this thing, but it says at the top Act 2, it's present day in Spartanville, Colorado, and Captain Victory is being assaulted by two sheriffs or deputies, and he shows them an immense ship that's hovering above them, which has been cloaked, and it's firing into some hills, and that's where the story ends.
3: Yeah, you know, so, It's also, I uh, just wanted to comment on that, that uh, two-page spread there, how awesome that looks. It, it's one of the things that I can, I'm an artist, I don't know if you guys draw or whatever, but I'm a professional cartoonist, and I can remember when I was a kid in, I don't know, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, wanting to draw my own comic books, and then looking at things, it, just daunting, because you go, oh my God, how do you get all that detail in there? Because I could draw the panels and put characters in. But then when you look at something like this, this is a two-page spread of the ship. And remember, again, you guys can go and grab this PDF from the, from the website for sure. And in there, I mean, you see so much detail. There are layers of the ship that you can imagine have layers in their, in their own. And that, as an artist, is what would absolutely intimidate me. When mm-hmm. I would see a spread like this, and I'm like, how, "How the hell am I going to do something like that?" Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah, there was a time where it's, I considered myself to be an stuff. artist, but I've yeah. long since given up on that hope. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't draw flies. It's great.
3: it's great stuff.
1: But it's it's this this is like an interesting era for Kirby, because it's at a point where you know he he worked for Marvel, then he went over to DC. Then he came back to Marvel, Mm -hmm. he was dissatisfied with how he was treated there, and then he uh, went basically indie, but did some freelance work for some people. Uh, His imagination just boggles my mind with with the way he came up with these things. Now, this is a little too similar in look to the Eternals, as I said, uh, as far as how Captain Victory looks, but just the whole concept, uh, I, I really think that when you look at Kirby's work, when you look at his solo work from the point where he left Marvel the first time on you could see where the influence of Stan Lee was huge because it kind of took those far out concepts that he came up with and it reeled them in and, and presented them in a way uh, where you know, it it, it made more sense. It, he'd ground this, these far out concepts that Kirby would come up with uh, and, and and he would also add Stilted but somewhat more realistic dialogue to the book. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that's where they made a genius combination. Whereas then when Kirby went off on his own, I mean, look at what he created after he left Marvel. He came up with the whole new the the, the what is it the new world not new world the fourth world fourth world excuse me. Uh, and then then he came back to Marvel and he created uh, you know the the Eternals and they said well we want you to come up with something for kids and he came up with Devil Dinosaur and uh, you know he would just just pencil things out like crazy, and and uh, he also did, a, what is it, Thundar the Barbarian? That was all his creation.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, I mean, his, his, and that's what you see when you similar, look at these Similar books. haircuts again. I'm sorry? Yep, similar
3: haircuts again. Similar haircuts again.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, I mean, and, and there are some similar looks. Even uh, in this particular book, the alien being that's talking to the queen looks similar to, I can't even think of what his name is, uh... The guy who who works at the uh, labs in the for, in the fourth world books, who's got the two horns, I, I can't even think of what his yeah, name is now. He that. kind of hangs out with Guardian. Uh, I can't even remember, but but you know, like the looks are very similar, and and it's definitely at this point he w- he was losing a step as far as what he was able to do. Some of the faces look a little bit more blocky and and a little less. Uh, registering of emotion that what he had done early in his career but you could still see he still got that spark of imagination in everything that he does and and this this reminded me probably most of his work uh, of omak how you came in and the story was just already flowing and going on and and you know you just jumped in right in midstream and kind of had to pick it up as you were going along. Yeah, this thing moves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> well, it's also it's it's kind of like what Mike said when you're comparing a woolly mammoth to an elephant. It's a bygone era of comic books where uh, you didn't have, you know, that decompressed storing storytelling. You know, so a story like this with as much that's going on in this book, this this would be a twelve issue miniseries by itself.
3: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There, there's a inside here. It's all page twenty four. It's the beginning of Act Two and. I think it's what drew my eye the most as I was just thumbing through it as you were giving us the, the book synopsis. And it's because it, it, it's striking. You, you look at that page and you've got the main character with this freaky looking hand, but then there's this kind of com- uh, uh, compressed, almost thumbnail storytelling on the left-hand right left side of the page. But also on the right-hand side of the page, there's all kinds of bubbling storytelling going on. Again, mm-hmm. it's, it goes back to a, a, a comic book storytelling that is that is that woolly Mammoth storytelling that you just really don't see much anymore. You, you just
1: don't. And, and, and I don't mind the decompressed storytelling. I mean, some people have a real problem with it. I, I don't mind that I read Brian Michael Bendis' work. I like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even mind the writing for The Trade where you have six-issue story arcs as, a, as an almost general rule. But I just wish they would escape from that a little bit more. Give us a little bit mm-hmm. more variation and give us a little bit more of the old style one and done books and, and you know, a little bit more just plot movement more quickly instead of having to, uh, drag everything on and hear how everybody feels about everything. Yeah. I agree <laughs> wholeheartedly. Yeah.
3: Get, getting to it is a, is a lost art friends. I hate, oh, I hate yeah. that.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it absolutely is. Uh, Oh, and then just to to follow up after after the story is done, we have one, two, three, four four pages of kind of extra uh, Kirby, you know, breaking down the characters, the weapons that they're using, uh, the insignias of the various military in this in the uh, series, which I love, by the way. And then a, a poster. Well, the, 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 I I can see the insignias being right up your alley.
3: Yeah, all of that stuff that is essentially the the Marvel Universe Encyclopedia books, which I don't know if you guys remember those original books, but man, I, I, I think I might murder my best friends for those original books again, because those kicked ass. Mm. Just all, the they were white, they were pristine, they were super chubby, and, and I, I can remember holding them in my hand, reading them as I was laying down, making sure that the pillow was behind my head absolutely perfectly, so that all I had to do was reach over and turn the page and not move for hours.
1: <laughs> yeah, just I...
3: awesome stuff, and that's exactly what's in the back end of this book. That um, page twenty-seven in particular. I'm looking at one that's got a. It's right after the uh, the drawing of the guy with the purple outfit. Right underneath him, all of those the, the line of eight figures there. That that reminds me so much of those stark white pages with. You know, just eons of detail that makes you want to go and find the nearest comic book about that character right now.
1: Yeah. Just
3: some series of books. And and that's one of the things when,
1: when I pull in a random issue like this out, one of the questions I ask. Now, in this particular case, this is the first issue in the series. So obviously there is no nothing preceding it. But what, what I ask is when, you know, you, when I pull a random issue, does it make you want to read more? Does it make you want to see what happened before? In this case, that doesn't exist. Or does it make you want to see where this is going? Like, you know, going through this, does it make you want to get issue number two and check it out? And I would, yeah. I would say yeah. yes on this. Yes. Oh
3: yeah. If you'd only showed me where you've got little egghead guy, whoever the hell that is. It's where he's, <laughs> it's this numbered head guy like Pumpty like, Dumpty, I guess. I, I don't know who the hell it is, but you know, you, you have him there and then there's that last panel on the bottom left hand side. If I saw that, I would instantly want to know who the hell that guy is. <laughs> so again, that there's your catch.
1: Yeah. I mean, even look at the top on, on that page. Look at the, the panel. Uh, look at all the detail just to, that he put on the, uh, the electronics around him. Yeah. You know, I mean that, that is, that's a yeah. Kirby staple is that. And on the next page, the uh at the bottom right corner with with all the you know the the basically i guess the starscape uh you yeah, know which which is famous as no kirby detail. crackle yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah the detail with no detail absolute stable you're absolutely right
1: and then no, nobody could do you know electronic equipment and spaceships kind of the way kirby did true which if you go to that that sure last double page spread like you said <laughs> i mean it's it's incredible yeah. The one thing I question, I, I oh, you know what? I, I just realized what it is, and and I and I always find this amusing. On on the giant ship, if you look on the left side of it, on on the final page, it says IGR, which is Intergalactic Rangers. So <laughs> I I always find it funny that people from you know other worlds have to have their giant initials, like when Galactus came down to Earth and had a giant G on his belt buckle.
3: That's just class. <laughs> It's a, is that not what it only is? that, it, it's, a, it's again where way back when this book was made, everybody was looking for some way to market something, and now it's completely different from what today, because obviously you you have everybody trying to market a bunch of things now, but back then, it it's where they wanted to develop something, and so obviously, IGR would turn into Igor, or you a member of Igor, I am. You too need this Igor ring, whatever it would be.
1: Well, let's... Uh... Just, just thinking about the we're uh, saying Thunder the Barbarian, and the yeah. the villain in that. Now, I I have to confess, I've never actually watched that, but the conf- the villain in that was Ukla the Mock and <laughs> Ukla, and he came up apparently Kirby came up with Ukla because he was driving by UCLA in California,
3: nice,
1: and and based on that named the villain Ukla. <laughs> Only he spelt it I think O O K L A, right. <laughs>
2: yeah it doesn't matter where inspiration comes from
1: yeah, it, well yeah. i mean that's that's the kirby imagination it just was i i you know i don't think he ever turned it off i think it was constantly going and i remember back in oh around i guess to around 75 when kirby came back to marvel and i was you know a wee lad of about 12 or 13 years old i sent jack kirby you know Care of Marvel Comics or Marvel, yeah, Jack Kirby, care of Marvel Comics. I sent him a package of like trading cards and comics and everything, and they sent it to him in California. He signed every one of them and sent it back to me. Wow. I mean, you know, that's to me, that's the kind of guy he was back then, or was, period. And I, I don't have everything he, he signed for me sadly at this point, but I do have a few of them still. And uh, those are treasured possessions because I think Kirby was just
0: incredible. Hi, heroes! Fasten your seatbelts, because Mighty Marvel is about to take you to a new dimension. And
1: I guess, Mike, you're on the hook now.
3: Outstanding! The book that I picked, and it's of a series that I hold a a lot of true reverence for, is from Alpha Flight. For those of you that don't remember what Alpha Flight is, Alpha Flight is an offshoot from the X-Men comics that is kind of the Canadian cradle for a, a bunch of really great heroes that I don't know I've ever really gotten a stage. I kind of compare them to uh, in the prelude, we were talking about M&M's and I know that you guys have eventually at one time in your life had trail mix. Well, alpha flight is essentially the chocolate carobs instead of M&M's of the Marvel (laughs) universe. (laughs) They are, they are crafted together by an, uh, an unbelievable staff of artists inside of the comic book realm. They are, of course, true representations of Stan Lee, as usual. Uh, But more importantly, they're characters that just all have really awesome origins that you, again, to go back to what Paul was talking about, do any of the stories or characters make you want to look at other books or lines that those characters appear in? And for me, every single character that's ever been inside of the Alpha Flight line, they all just ooze, what the hell is that guy? (laughs) <laughs> or girl in this case. And inside this comic we're looking at Alpha Flight Number Five, which is gonna be awesome because Paul actually had already talked about Alpha Flight Number Six, which you can find over at the website, I'm assuming, Paul.
1: Yes. Yes, okay. I
3: couldn't tell you off
1: the top of my head which episode I did that in, but it it definitely okay. is in the back to the bins episodes on the two true freaks website.
3: Okay, perfect. And and it's something to definitely go back and look at the issue number six is a wonderful story as well. Inside of this one, the cover is one of the most noteworthy covers and it's really what got me more interested in what we're talking about here. The cover itself is uh, again, you've got red and white alpha flight up on top, alluding always to the wonderful maple leaf uh, colors of (laughs) Canada. But on it, it has puck jumping out of the hallmark and I'm actually showing it here on video to you guys. Um, it's, it's actually got Puck, one of the characters, jumping out of the Hallmark, trademark Marvel uh, character standing there for no particular reason. And then literally jumping through and then out into the front of the comic book. With uh, Down at the bottom right-hand side, it's actually got the word Puck. And Puck actually has the same hair that Puck has. Uh, <laughs> it's a wonderfully crafted cover and one that is absolute attention drawing.
1: And, and it's, so, it's worth noting that in that cover, I, I'm really quickly counting, so I may be off by one or two, but I think there are 16 different images of Puck starting yes. from the smallest one and leading to the biggest one in the foreground which is, you know, wonderfully showing motion.
3: Yes. And, and it, again, it hearkens to what we're talking about here inside of the craft of comic books that every time you see a comic book now again, it's a completely different woolly mammoth where back here, this was the woolly mammoth, you look at it and go, whoa! And now you look at it and you go, man, that's really cool. And, and that's the difference between the art that you had back then. In, in this case, it's, oh, uh, let's see here. It doesn't have the born-on date that I can see right away. But I think it was 82, 83-ish. Maybe in December 83. 1983. 83. There we go. And that was 60 cents, December 5th. Uh, and we jump into the first panel. And it has this giant, what fools these mortals be. And inside of the bed is ass kicked Puck, who, of course, is, uh, w- without really telling anybody, he's making a motion over to a, an incredibly attractive young nurse that's leaving the room. And standing next to him, of course, is one of everyone's favorite characters the uh, super-duper Indian feathers, not guts, to young men. Uh, the story inside of this one is uh, Puck is trying to heal from the battles that he's had in previous episodes. And he, for some reason, he just he can't knock the, the edge off the pain that's going on um, inside of his hospital stay. And he can't figure it out. And so he decides to go and do some investigative stuff. And as we get into... Uh, some of the further pages here what I've, I've always loved about puck and what instantly made me wonder about him is if you look at puck's head either his left or right side are actually in the inside of the fourth page inside on the bottom on the bottom there you'll see that puck has one gargantuan cauliflower ear <laughs> and as a <laughs> former wrestler i had friends that had cauliflower ears but nothing like this. This is like super cauliflower ears. And, uh, I'm not kidding. It's like somebody went and took a, like, a, uh, you know, some, some cocktail wieners or something and glued them together and shoved them on his head with some Velcro. That that's kind of what this looks like. And so I've always been curious about the drawing of that. And it's uh, it's really great stuff. The, uh, the drawing here, of course, is, uh, by John Byrne. The letter is Tom or, uh, or Zikowski.
1: I think that's right. The colorist
3: right. is Andy Yankus. Uh, and it's it's all just wonderful, classic uh, stuff that you'll never forget. And, again, what I love about comics like this is you look at any frame and a story is being told. I think that's something that's missing inside of Kirk comics is, again, you get that awe and you get the wow look at the colors. But I don't think that every single frame in particular the way the frames are set in this, which is very traditional, in my opinion, uh, each of these frames tells a story where modern-day comic books don't, especially if you take pieces of what you're looking at on one page. As the story progresses, Puck begins to find out that the medicine that he's being given is actually diluted, which leads him to find out that the gorgeous nurse that is... um, Helping him out is actually taking some of that medication, and uh, it's being delivered to, as we find out later in the story, it's being delivered to the doctor who is actually the bad guy inside of, uh, inside of the, the entire entourage, and uh, I've I just kind of killed the entire story. And there's just gotta be I don't know, fifteen or sixteen different pages that that uh, that provide all of that with again that last piece of. Puck Punching the doctor in the head. It's kind of that Scooby Doo mask comes off moment. And uh, it's just wonderfully done. The art on that page, in particular, you get some outstanding cauliflower ear art.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I see exactly the page you're talking about. And yeah. yeah, he really went out of his way to emphasize that ear.
3: Yeah. Uh, the, again, the last several pages are something that is a, a fantastic hallmark inside of not just this series, but inside of Alpha Flight Comics in general, where you've got. Uh, not quite an origin story, but some great lead up into what is episode or uh, issue six that Paul dialogued in a previous podcast. So make sure that you uh, look at this comic and then listen to the episode and read that comic of Alpha Flight, which is, again, one of my favorite series.
1: I agree totally with what you're saying about the artwork in this one. And I think the distinction to some extent is... And I don't mean to be totally cynical, but somehow I usually am. Uh, (laughs) I think a lot of the artists today are drawing pages to supplement their income because they sell it for publication in the book. And then they sell it for individual, you know, the individual pages for potentially thousands of dollars. uh, And they want to make a page that that is that has commercial value. Uh, There's
3: no doubt. And, and,
1: you know, that didn't really exist back then. The the original art sales were not a big deal back in the early 80s. And and, and to to be honest with you, I kick myself because I went to conventions back in those days, and they had original artwork by people that you could never afford to buy artwork from now. And I think they were charging, you know, $40 for it. and, And... Rather than spend $40 on one page of art, I would think, well, I could get a bunch of comics for this money, Uh, and I would buy you know just a bunch of books instead. Now, in this era of Alpha Flight, it was kind of a unique thing, and we did talk about that to some extent uh, previously, but what what Byrne did that was kind of unique was he created Alpha Flight. He didn't intend them to have their own series. They were just basically written as characters for the X-Men book that was coming out, and then he was
3: put on the spot
1: to do the series. I'm but, sorry. What were you going to say, Mike?
3: I, I, I said right, the chocolate carob series, as opposed to the M M&M and M series.
1: Yes, and when when but when he did do the series, to do it differently, what he did was uh, at least in the first, I think, ten issues or so, he didn't have them act as a team at all. He had right. them. He had all individual solo stories, which was definitely unique for that era. Yeah, and and I did find that to be really interesting, and. The, one of the things that's just great about this issue, and it's something I look to in all of these issues, is if you page through this issue and you look at each picture and you don't read any of the dialogue, you understand this story. Yes. And it's great storytelling. It's not, just, it's not just poster images and it's not just pretty pictures to, to, to sell. It's great storytelling. Right. And that's something I always look to now, is to see if, if the artist is just giving us pictures or if they're presenting a story, and this one has it. Chris, what what'd you think of this one?
2: Well, it's hard not to like Puck. I mean, come on. <laughs> 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 uh, the fact that uh, if I got in shape, I would be just the right height to cosplay as him <laughs> doesn't hurt either. I think I have the body here, too. So, um, yeah, it's uh, Alpha Flight was a was a series that I need to look into more. It was never really on my radar growing up, um, mostly because it was pretty much just Spider-Man for me as a kid. But um, it is a series that I do want to go back and, and take a look at, especially just for the John Byrne artwork alone.
1: Yeah,
3: um, I'm telling like, you, dude, it, that is what, if there was something, if you, if you don't like any of the characters at all, and I don't know anybody who doesn't like Puck. You're crazy if you don't the uh the, the the artwork alone there's a there's a page here where in four different panels on the same well it's actually all panels, there is this awesome little yellow van and you just look at the yellow van and you go, look at this artwork inside of this book <laughs> a dumb yellow van could be just a dumb yellow van, but it's not it's all got personality, and every single page has got something personality that jumps off the page into your eyes.
1: Absolutely. All right. Anybody have anything else on this
3: issue? It was a fun one. Oh, but I guess beyond. Yeah, there's there's actually a page where uh, Puck is taking out a couple of the people that are delivering the drugs. And again, when we talk about motion and action and conveying all of that in still frame. Mm Mm-hmm it's beyond what you can imagine. The first frame is literally one of the guys that's conveying the drug says, hey, who the heck is that? And Puck realizes that he's been seen. And the next frame down is Puck instantly bashing these two guys in the head with his boots. (laughs) It's awesome. The next frame is then him stepping on the guy with red hair's head and his face goes into the ground. And then of course that wonderful kind of faded he's going to go into this next move uh drawing from john Byrne, and then the last frame is what i think is a hallmark of puck where it's these concentric circles look like they're out of a spirograph where you know that puck starts in this area of the frame and ends of course in the in the other end of the frame and then there's this guy in the middle that just gets his ass kicked (laughs) and i love that about puck he it is absolute electric storytelling
1: yeah, just just uh, Fox got some nasty hair, man. <laughs> <laughs> Robin Williams esque. Yes. Of hair. He, oh yeah. It's, it, it's just you know I mean just the reason that stands out isn't because I really care about that. It's just it's so the antithesis of what you see in so many other books. I mean, until Neil Adams started drawing uh, Bruce Wayne with chest hair, I don't think <laughs> I don't think you ever had any characters that had body hair to speak of at all yeah Wolverine's so,
3: the only other one Wolverine, I can remember yeah. Hardcore,
1: yeah yeah and that's also John Byrne who did that because I think in the appearances of Wolverine pre burn when Dave Cochran was drawing the X-Men and uh even when Herb Trimpy did him in his first appearance in the Hulk I don't think he had that heavy body hair mm. that he was event that he eventually was known for under under Byrne yeah
3: there's, uh, there's another couple of frames, a uh, couple of pages in. And it, it's wonderful that we were talking about that kind of sketchy, undetailed art. And then, the, you know, what you see inside this book. But even inside of this book, there's three frames on the bottom of page 14. And down there, are you guys still there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, down the, on the bottom, the bottom three frames, you actually see as uh, Puck is bleeding from a wound that he's got. You see his vision fade, And so you go from uh, the middle photos where he's trying to reach, climb up a a series of boxes and barrels and reach the phone. And you see his, his hand and vision crushing into simplicity. And that's him obviously passing out. That again is that wonderful ability to storytell by getting more basic in your drawing. Yeah. That's genius. Really is.
1: Yeah. And we've, we've, uh, You know, if I don't know how many how much you've had a chance to hear us, but we've we've sung the praises of John Byrne on many occasions because everybody who does this show is a huge fan. And most people I know are huge fans of John Byrne, to be honest with you, because his work was just so incredible. Uh, And, and, you know, it, it this this shows, you know, really some of his artwork at his best.
3: Yes, I totally agree with that.
1: Classy, classy stuff. And if nothing else, we've inspired Chris to start looking back at some of these books now. Yeah, definitely need to check out Alpha Flight.
3: Yeah, the the gist of Alpha Flight is that it's storytelling and characters unlike I remember, especially back then. Uh, And it's totally worth your time. And learning these characters, especially as you get into the the 30s, 40s, and 50s um, issues, there's so much rich storytelling and character development that, it really is worth your time.
1: Cool. Okay, and on that note. Meanwhile, at the Hall of Justice, we'll go to our DC book.
2: Oh boy, this was a this was a hell of a one to pick.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you, we're going from two of the modern masters, or the classical masters, actually, Jack Kirby and John Byrne, and who do we have next?
2: Oh well. I pulled this little, uh, number out of my long box, and it is Hell Jordan is the Spectre, number one. This was right after he parallaxed out, and, well, that story's been retconned, and so is this entire Spectre series, but whatever. And it's, uh, issue number one from, I believe it is March 2001. Yep, yeah, March 2001. And it is written by, fan favorite of a lot of people, J.M. DeMatteis, drawn by Ryan Souk, who, uh... Gives off a serious uh, Mike Mignola vibe in this issue. And uh, see, Bill Oakley's the letterer, James Sinclair's the colorist, and uh, I really don't care about the rest of the byline because they probably had nothing to do with the issue. <laughs> um, so we have the lovely title of All Ye Who Enter Here. So I can, you know, anybody that's had a classical education knows uh, abandon all hope before. That part of my the education clogged.
1: is far from classical, but I do know that that line.
2: Yeah, yeah. I guess my parents loved me too much; they wanted the best for me. W- weren't they stupid? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: <laughs>
2: but uh, we enter with Hal Jordan. Now as the Spectre, looking very upset and appearing to clutch a baby, and he's berating this old woman who's done some very horrible things. And then the uh, demon baby that he's holding leaps out at her and is about to consume her and kill her. And this version of the specter says, no, I don't want that to happen. And he spares her life and says, go turn yourself in. And uh, she does, apparently. And the specter walks off. And lo and behold, who comes to see him but uh, the ghost of Abin Sir himself. And uh, if that's not screwy enough, I don't know what is. Um yeah. <laughs> but uh why the hell would Abensar be there? Does hell need someone to talk to? Is it his conscience? Who knows? We're only in the first issue. But uh Abin-sir, uh says needs, you need you got some questions to ask. Um you don't know why you're doing what you're doing. Let's go see someone that can help and we take a metaphysical trip to hell as in hell's mall. So if there was a place that was hell's mall, I would probably not go there uh cuz it looks pretty frightening. Um Carol Ferris is apparently feeling the presence of Hal Jordan at the same time, and why wouldn't she? Um Then again, I don't know why he's with her in the first place, but whatever. Uh <laughs> so we we take this trip to hell and Hal sees a uh rather sort of Indian looking woman, uh and asks if she's Santa Claus and she says rearrange the letters. Uh, Satan. <laughs> it's a nice little verbal pun there and uh hell wants to know why what really what the hell is going on why why is he why does he have to be the wrath of god and why is someone that w- did the things that he did now damned to <laughs> to carry out these awful heinous things and uh there's a lot of talking in this issue but what it boils down to is uh only a guy like him that has done such awful things kind of kind of can realize what what the world is and this Satan character sort of lets him know that maybe it's not maybe it's time for someone like him to be in the position that he's in and, and someone like Satan to sort of drop by the wayside. There's a there's a nice scene where Hal's going through his mystical journey and he sees the the woman that he spared uh come back to him and, and she's happy. He's you know, he's done the right thing, she's redeemed herself. And uh that's that's really why he's there. It's it's time for God's vengeance to take a different turn, and uh, the guy that you know destroyed Coast City and killed half the DC universes—he's the guy that's going to do it. Um, it's a really, really bizarre issue. It's a really bizarre series, but it's one that I, I enjoyed reading at the at the time. Um, it's a—it's almost Vertigo-esque in in the way that it's drawn and written. Um, it, it, it seriously i mean it's pretty dark stuff even for you know the comic booky hal jordan that just killed everybody um the artwork is really moody um and it's uh it's a shame that this series kind of got crapped all over when they decided to bring hal jordan back as green lantern not seems like not too long after this um but uh it, it's it's a good it's a good first issue it does make you want to read more um, you say, What 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 is this version of the Spectre gonna do if he's not gonna be all bile and rage? Um it definitely it ends on, you know, the cliffhanger of Carol and, and Hal's brother saying, uh yeah, Hal's alive, he's out there somewhere and what are we gonna do about it? Um I really wish I could say more, but it's it's a really it's a really wordy issue that you just kinda have to read for yourself, but it's definitely worth
1: looking at. Yeah, it yep. it definitely was interesting. It's not a it's not a light read. That's for no, sure. No, it wasn't.
3: Uh, no, it and, definitely looks involved. I I know next to nothing about anybody in the DC universe except maybe Batman, who is you know one of my hallmark characters. But the Dark is being kind on this issue. I love a lot of the visuals in here, though, that I would have never anticipated reading in a something that had Hal Jordan in it.
2: Yeah, that's the that's the thing. Is it's, I and I don't know who it was that decided to to put him in the in the Spectre's position. I mean it, and it does make sense when you read the series, um, but like I said, I mean they retconned the hell out of it afterwards. So it's it's more of a curiosity piece. You know, it's only it wasn't an overly long series. I think it was only 24, 25 issues. But uh, it is interesting, heady stuff that you would not associate with the, the Green Lantern.
1: And the thing I found most striking about this issue is the artwork. Uh, I'm not generally a fan of this type of look. This is uh, like I think when you said it's Mike Mignola like. I think that's that's very
2: accurate. Uh, But not as good. No, no, not as good.
1: Looking at things, you know, it opens up basically with like a Rorschach image that becomes a face. Uh, When when they get to the Hell's Mall, there's a like a pyre at the top of it but within the pyre there's this there's satan's face which which is just really cool the way that he that that he incorporated that in there uh and then there's some little touches there's a movie theater at hell's mall and it's the cinema s-i-n-e-m-a the cinema six actually At one point when they're in the mall, if you look at the top of one of the stores, it's Dante's, which yep. is a callback to the title of the issue. And then there's just probably a lot more imagery in here than I'm even noticing uh, because okay, it is exactly. it is highly detailed in its layout. It's not so much that the individual uh, images are so detailed, but the layout really is. Yes.
3: Especially,
1: Especially when you get
3: like –
1: when you get to page sixteen, which has about one, two, three, four, five, six, it's got about ten, ten different, ten or twelve panels on it, all with very moody coloring. Yeah. And every one of them's got a lot of detail in it, so there's, there's just a lot going on. And or or even page seventeen, which is just a splash page, but highly moody and. Uh, and and you really you know you have to stare at it and kind of try and pick out exactly what it's showing you. And there's a kind of a skeleton head in there, or skull yeah. rather. Yeah, it's uh, the
2: specter, but it's
1: really swirly and twirly, and it takes yeah. a while to see it. So I mean, there's there's a lot going on here, and uh, it, it's it's not my style of artwork. You know, John Byrne that that more simple straightforward artwork is more my style but it really is striking and it, it, it just makes you stare at it and i guess that's as an artist that's one of your goals
2: yeah it's it's not my preferred style of artwork either um, i mean i kind of hold up john ramita is mm-hmm. probably probably my favorite guy but it's uh it's definitely evocative i mean you can't help but look at it for good or ill
3: yeah In inside of page 11 there's something that Hallmarks immediately to the, the Matrix series of films, where you've got the television sets, and each of them has a, a different expression or somebody evoking something, whether it's a scream or a, you know, blood curdling or fear or <laughs> yeah. whatever. And that that it's actually carried out through a couple of other panels too. Um, that caught me, and then of course this wonderful snake-like image. Uh, on page what is that? On page twelve, the next page. Man, that's yeah. some awesome stuff there. I, I I really enjoy that a lot. I I like this kind of artwork, and I've got to tell you guys that you've got this kind of artwork with all of the dialogue that's going on inside of this. This is some masterful storytelling.
1: Yeah, and this, this and this artwork is perfectly suited to the dark story that they're telling. Oh yeah. You know, John Byrne's artwork, like I said, where that may be more of my favorite style, or John Romita, uh, is, is, as Chris mentioned, he's my all-time favorite artist, actually. Their work would not be dark enough for this. I'm not saying they couldn't adapt and be darker if they wanted to, but their traditional style would not fit this storytelling.
3: No, I agree with that. I agree with
2: that. It's, it, it really does. I Rereading it, I'm like, this really probably should have been under the Vertigo line, just because it's so different. Yeah, but it's still Hal Jordan, so I guess they had to keep him in continuity or or, uh, or something like that. But it's uh, it's such it's just so bizarre. I mean,
1: <laughs> now when, when, the, yeah. when the when the demon baby comes out, uh, I don't know how familiar you guys are, but doesn't it look like? Or if if you are familiar with it, doesn't it look like uh, a dire wraith from Rom? Uh see I haven't read Rom? No. Yeah, okay. No, right, I was well, thinking Belial like from Basket uh, Case. If I had Scott Gordner on here, believe me, he'd know.
3: <laughs> what, what it one... kinda looks like is the uh the stomach baby from uh total recall flying out with a giant umbilical cord or something. That's what
1: i
2: not Start the reactor. Sorry. Yeah. Give them oh. the air. <laughs> 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 yeah, and then my heart I is thinking Belial from Basket Case when I see that.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, and I also love uh, page six. He's got a or it's not page six. It's uh, yeah, bottom of page seven there. where it's got his red faced friend flying around, and then that kind of imagery above a dude. Uh, again, I know nothing about the story that we're actually looking at here, but there's a guy that looks like he's walking down the down the street he's got a suit on and then above him is the apparition of what i'm assuming hal is the specter i love that
1: yeah that is kind of so
3: sketchy but it's you instantly know what it is that's awesome
1: yeah now now scott gardner he is not a fan at all of hal jordan uh he he (laughs) thinks hal jordan's just a boring character and you know, just, he doesn't like him. And sure. I, you know, Hal Jordan was my Green Lantern, though. When I started reading, Hal, Hal Jordan was the Green Lantern, so I always kind of have, have a soft spot for him because of that. But with stories like this, it makes me kind of regret that they did go to the Rebirth and bring Hal Jordan back. Because you could tell very similar stories with... The the other uh, Green Lanterns and still have Hal, Hal Jordan in this role, and I'm sure. If, what'd you say, Chris? This was about 25 issues.
2: Yeah, it wasn't long. It, it might have been a few more than that. I think I have the first 22 or something. That 22 might actually be the last issue.
1: But you got to figure if that's all they came out with. There's a hell of a lot of untapped storytelling that they could have done.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, if you know, if they were, especially if they were going to use this as the tool to to to, you know, redeem Hal instead of what happened with uh, Rebirth, you know mm-hmm. it's kind of it, it kind of makes sense just after the atrocities that he committed that it would go to this sort of metaphysical level uh, you, you know, instead of him just putting on the the powering again and beating up bad guys, wouldn't it need to be something deeper that he'd have to do to yeah. <laughs> to make up for it
1: Now, now I don't know if you if you're familiar with the current version of the phantom stranger that they're coming out with if you followed that no i'm not but lying. basically they you know the, the phantom stranger as far as i knew was always just kind of a, a a deus ex machina type character who would come in and have you know this knowledge of what was going on around them and this mystical energy but you never really had any origin story and he he really wasn't so much of a character as he was you know just a uh a, a means to an end Uh, but he's got a series ongoing now, and I read the first three issues, and then I've fallen off of it, but basically, uh, and spoilers to anybody who's looking to to read this at this point, uh, but basically they present it as he is Judas, who betrayed Jesus, and he's doing his penance as the Phantom Stranger. And it's kind of an interesting concept. I don't know if I like them making him quite that defined of a character, but it's <laughs> but it's 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 in, definitely an interesting concept to think that, you know, basically for for committing such a uh, an atrocity, he's, you know, doing his penance for basically eternity up to this point, uh, you know, and and trying to make up for that that horrible thing he did, and and I kind of could see that as being the theme of this series. Uh, with Hal Jordan that they abandoned, but you may get similar themes in that Phantom Stranger series. Uh,
2: yeah, I might have series. to look into that. That does kind of sound like it would be up my alley.
1: <laughs> well, if you like this, I mean, it's definitely not as dark as it, this.
2: It, believe me, this is not my typical, you know, <laughs> what I read. I but My stuff is pretty much flights and tights. <laughs> I mean, that's what I like to read. But uh, I just picked this one up when it was coming out, and it was like, oh, well, why not? We'll see what happens. And it was, you know... Just one of those little surprises i uh, you know that you find when you pick up a random book
1: and and for what it's worth for anybody listening to the show, uh Mike and I spoke two days ago at which point I asked him if he'd be interested in being on tonight, so he's had two days two whole days to prep for this. Uh, Bill Robinson was going to do the show with us, but Bill has some things he had to get taken care of for work. And a half an hour before we started recording, Chris, uh, Bill threw this to Chris and said, Hey, do you want to take my spot? And he found the book and prepped it and got ready. So I'm pretty impressed with the fact that you were able to get all of that done in such a short period of time.
2: Well, you don't have to, you don't have to twist my arm to get me to read funny books. So we'll talk about them. (laughs) Same here.
1: Uh, I don't know if you guys have anything more on this one.
2: Yeah, it's one of those ones you just gotta to pick it up for yourself
1: if it sounds interesting. Yeah, and and it and I definitely would recommend it. It's it's definitely if you're a
2: Hal Jordan fan, it's or a Spectre fan, it's it's definitely worth picking up, especially if you're a Hal Jordan fan, just to see a different side of them that they really could have turned into something special, but sort of let it fall away.
1: Yeah, I I would say that there is it's it's a lost opportunity to some extent. Yeah. But I think that's about it. And I want to thank you guys so much for coming on with me. I really appreciate it because otherwise I would have had another week where I wasn't recording, and I'm not happy when I don't record. <laughs> oh, well, well I was happy pleasure.
3: to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to come on, and uh, again, the 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 wonder of being able to step back into anything interesting like comic book. It is a it's another avenue of escapism. And it's something I can remember vividly spending hours and days and lots of time and going to events and, you know, building that nostalgia bridge to something that you can always hearken back to that is lost memories that re-energize what you're working on, but also provide that perspective that we're talking about inside of podcasting, which is why I wanted to jump into the show.
1: And I don't think I could say it better than that, so I appreciate that sentiment. Yeah, enough said. <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: it, man. Game over, man. It's Game over.
3: Okay, Bill, are we ready? Sure, Paul. Oh, wait. Be right back. I need my Avengers Omnibus. Uh, sh- where did I put that
1: thing? Well, Bill looks for that. Let me tell you about our new endeavor. Two True Freaks has grown, and Back to the Bins is growing with it. I, Paul Spataro, along with Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner...
3: ...to say his name three times in an email and he'll appear in your show. Hey, how's it going? Ah! Sorry, sorry, I forgot I had a Scott Gardner life model decoy in here. Be right there.
0: (laughs) Ow! Ow, Who put Cap's shield there?
1: (laughs) Anyway, we're looking to showcase various characters, storylines, issues, or whatever strikes our fancy from the world of the Avengers.
3: Hey, Ben. Move that funny looking hammer, would you? It's it's on that book and I can't move it.
1: Sure thing, Dad. Where do you want it?
3: Uh, over there somewhere. No, watch out for the repulsor. No! <laughs> <Ow! laughs> oh! ah! Ah! Don't tell your mother.
1: We like to call it Avengers Spotlight.
3: I thought it was going to be called Old Avengers Never Die. They just get reassembled and sent to another Earth. What? Too wordy.
1: Who knows what we'll cover,
0: and who might stop by. So join us for the Avengers Spotlight, where we'll look at Earth's greatest heroes in some of comics' greatest stories, such as the Korvax Saga, Acts of Vengeance, the Kree-Skrull War, and, oh, for the love of Christ, who the hell put the Celestial Madonna Saga on this list? Huh. I found a use for that life model decoy after all. Okay, found it. We ready?
3: <sighs> hey, wait a minute. This is the Book of the Vishanti forget it
0: see
1: you soon everybody
0: my favorite adventures are d-man and green lantern say good night scott good night scott thank you so much for listening to our show and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at com